Welcome to Future Out Loud from the School for the Future of Innovation in Society at Arizona State University. I'm Heather Ross. Together with Andrew Maynard, we bring you conversations with experts on and off campus where we think out loud about our collective future. In today's episode, Andrew went solo on the Future Out Loud podcast because I was out of town. So I am very excited to tell you that Andrew got to talk with astrophysicist and Nebula award-winning science fiction author Gregory Benford while he was visiting ASU. Uh, Greg is a very accomplished physicist at the University of California, Irvine, but he's also been the author of over 40 books in the science fiction genre, um, including winning the 1981 Nebula Award for Nest Novel for his book, Timescape. So Greg was here to give a lecture for the Beyond Center at ASU on science fiction meets science fact. I heard about the conversation after the fact from Andrew, um, and I know that they hit a huge range of topics from geoengineering, the climate, and asteroid mining, and there might even be a mention of Elon Musk, which to podcast listeners who have heard us before, you know that we do like to talk about Elon Musk. So before we begin with Andrew's first solo podcast episode. Uh, thank you, of course, for listening to Future Out Loud. We would love to hear what you think about the Future Out Loud podcast. So you can let us know on Twitter or on Facebook. We're in both of those places at Future Out Loud. If you're not already subscribed to the Future Out Loud podcast, you can do that on iTunes or on SoundCloud or wherever you find your fine podcasts. So without further ado, oh, actually with just a tiny bit of further ado, uh, you can also find old episodes on our, or pardon me, on our website, futureoutloud.org. And now without further ado, on with Greg Benford and Andrew Maynard. Hi, Greg. Hi, it's good to be here. It's very good to have you. Um, so let's jump straight in. So you're here at Arizona State University to talk about science fiction and science fact. Yes. Okay, so where do things diverge there? So you're a science fiction author as well as a, a respected scientist. I mean, right. How do you reconcile these two worlds? Well, first, at a very early age I realized that you cannot have a future that you do not first envision. Right. So thinking about the future is mandatory. And lately, oh, for the last several decades, I've been work working in several different areas uh, trying to look at the big issues of the 21st century. And uh, tonight uh, I will talk about uh, two answers to growing problems right. that are <clears throat> hypothetical and inevitable. Mm -hmm. in my opinion. Particularly though, they're driven by one big factor and that is the ever-increasing human population. Right. <clears throat> which means you need more resources and the problem of climate change will become worse. Mm -hmm. And those are two linked outcomes. Right, and, and presumably as part of that, it's not only the number of people, <coughs> but the demands that we're putting on the planet. I mean, everybody expects more, it seems. Mm -hmm. 
yes, I have friends uh, of the usual sort of academic Marxists who, who say, you know, the problem is capitalism. But, right. of course, that's utterly naive. The problem is human appetite. Mm -hmm. And capitalism didn't invent that. Right. Capitalism is just really good at catering to it. Right. Uh, Poverty-stricken worlds will not have a lot of climate change, for example, mm -hmm. because they'll burn wood. Sure, sure. <laughs> and that was all of humanity until about three centuries ago. Mm -hmm. Ago. So this is a new problem because we have now found new solutions. Well, so tonight I'm going to talk about new solutions that we can see within reach and know how to grasp. Right. The first one is that we're running into material shortages, mm -hmm. which are not terribly bad yet, but are growing at a very, very high pace. Right. Uh, one that nobody much pays attention to is rare earths. 90% mm -hmm. of all the known rare earth deposits are controlled by Red China. Right, right. Uh, creating an automatic international problem, which is only going to worsen. The backup resources are mostly in Africa, and the Chinese are moving to actually capture those assets as right, well. Right, right, right. Um, other things such as the platinum group of metals, which are used in everything from your cell phone and, and computers to uh, your uh, Smog uh, uh, canceling, what is it called in automobiles? Well, you've got the catalytic converter, right. yes. Yeah, the yes. catalytic converter, all those things require fairly rare, particularly platinum group elements. Right, right. Meanwhile, we know, thanks to the astronomy uh, department here, uh, and particularly uh, people who've done their work, primarily at ASU or the University of Arizona, we know of asteroids uh, which have uh, more platinum group metals in them and yet are only a kilometer or two, or two apart than the entire known deposits on the planet. Right, right. And they're hanging around out there in space and the property of no one. So it seems like a no-brainer to work out how we go out there and mine them. Right. right. Now, this will be carried out, I'm convinced, in this century, primarily by uh, very efficient rocketry and very smart robots. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. There is very little human role in this. Okay, so we're not talking about sending people out uh, to asteroids. No, there are not going to be any asteroid miners as much science fiction of the 50s and 60s envisioned. Right, right. In fact, I, not only then, I've just written an essay on a science fiction short story where it was human-driven asteroid mining, so it's still there in the psyche. Right, who wrote the story? Oh, goodness me, you're putting me on the spot there. Um, I'd have to remember that, I can't remember. Sounds like Paul Anderson. It wasn't Paul Anderson, <laughs> but it's actually part of a new anthology that's coming out in a, a few weeks' time that ASU has put together. Oh, uh, yes, yes, I heard that was coming out. Yes. I want to read it. Yes. Um, well, the trick is that we didn't really know much about robotics beyond Asimov's laws right. in the 1950s, and we didn't envision that we would be able to carry out intricate tasks in zero gravity using robots. Well, we still have uh, only limited capability of that, but it's a burgeoning field right. and inevitable. Right, right. So hauling out to asteroids, some of which are actually surprisingly close mm -hmm. in the sense of velocity, not of position. Uh, you mean a meaning that you can change your velocity by a couple of miles uh, an hour. Well, maybe more like 100 miles an hour right. in the solar system right. and approach asteroids. Set up a mining group, mm -hmm. do your mining, get the uh, valuable metals or rare earths, and, and we know they're rare earths in the asteroids mm -hmm. too, yep. uh, and bring them back to the earth. Right, right. 
there are asteroids whose estimated value is a trillion dollars. Right, right. So if you can actually make that economically viable, it makes sense. So I'm presumably in this sort of grand sort of imagination, you're imagining um, sending autonomous vehicles out there to actually mine and then bring the stuff back. You're not thinking at the moment about somehow steering an asteroid sort of closer to, to Earth's orbit. Well, yes, that's generally true. Right. And once you really know the intricacies of moving things around in the solar system, uh, you can also contemplate doing things like, you want to build a habitat in Earth orbit, mm -hmm. high Earth orbit, why don't you hollow out an asteroid, right. throw right. the mass inside, overboard, electromagnetically, as a right. propulsion right. element, yes. bring it to yes. the Earth, and you've got a hollow apartment house. Right, right. Uh, right. Which you can then spin, by the way, for artificial gravity. Yes. And we already know where those restaurants, uh, those restaurants, those asteroids <laughs> right. are. The, the you see where your mind is going Yes, the, the, the restaurants <laughs> will come a little after right. the asteroid. Right. Yes. So, you see, we know how to do these things in principle. Yep. Of course it's a big engineering job. Yep. But, you know, human history is about big engineering jobs. So how do you get over the, the initial resource investments here? And you can see, sort of, once you've managed to get out to asteroids, you've started mining them, the economics work. But it seems like you've got a huge barrier to start yeah. with. Well, the United States faced that problem. Uh, in the 1860s, mm -hmm. and we built the Transcontinental Railroad. Right. Uh, one thing I point out in my talk this evening is a, a map of the United States in 1812 showing that almost everything we now have was in the hands of other people, such as uh -huh. the French and the Spanish. Right. Uh, and the Russians. Um, and it contains a quotation in a letter that Thomas Jefferson wrote to Congress saying that the Lewis and Clark expedition had just successfully returned and was full of information about these great lands that we had just bought from Napoleon. Mm -hmm. And then he added, of course, it will take a thousand years for our republic to reach the ocean, right. meaning the Pacific. Right. Well, the Transcontinental Railroad was completed four years after the conclusion of the Civil War. Right. It slowed down by the Civil War right, somewhere. Right, right, but still incredibly fast. So the point is he was off by uh, two orders of magnitude. Right, yes. Uh, I think this is going to be true of the exploration of space. Yeah. Um, it's worth mentioning that even in the High Sierra, where I have a place, the nearby mines were reached by railroads only 20 years after the completion of the Transcontinental Railroad. Mm -hmm. All the way up into the High Sierra, they were hauling ore out of the hills. Right. Uh, because you could see that there was a reasonable gain over a reasonable time scale. Sure, yes. So it's going to be an investment decision, and, and of course, everything is about the low-hanging fruit. Mm -hmm. So that's going to be an intricate, intricate economic yeah, argument yeah. to make. So, so in your, your mind, is this something that we're going to see the, the private entrepreneurs really take over? I, at the moment, we're seeing people like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos really pushing the boundaries of space. Is that where you think the action is going to be? I think inevitably it's going to be uh, to the smart, the quick, and the, the able. Right. And, and I know these people personally. Mm -hmm. uh, Jeff and Elon and, and the others, Branson um, and Paul Allen. But you know what they really want is not another billion dollars. Mm -hmm. They want the dream. Right. <laughs> they want to be the people who open up a new frontier. Yes, yes. And uh, they're all, by the way, science fiction fans. Every single one. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Which gives you incredible sort of power over them in terms of the ideas. Uh, yeah, well, the ideas do their own walking right, with these right, gentlemen. Right. So I think it will be driven by the entrepreneurs, but of course nation states always have a hand in it. Mm -hmm. After all, Lincoln made a lot of things available 
to the Transcontinental Railroad, property rights went through Congress and so forth. There's always going to be a political aspect. Right. Government right. has a hand in this yep. because government likes profits too. Mm-hmm. Um, or is, uh, let's see, was it Faraday who testified in Parliament about uh, his discoveries in electricity and magnetism? And uh, the member of Parliament said, well, you know, what actual use of this is there, Mr. Faraday? And he, the man said, uh, the uses, I think, are soon to come, but for your purposes, you will be happy to learn that you will soon enough tax it. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> and all of a sudden, the light bulb goes off. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right. It's true. Yep. Uh, and there are many other things you can do. And there are actually some good reasons to put people in space. For example, um, there seems to be some an idea that you might actually lessen the wear and tear on the human body in lower gravity, not mm-hmm. zero gravity. Right, right. Uh, so for old people, mm-hmm. uh, there's a lot of stress and uh, a, a lot of reduction of stress if you could lower gravity a little, say go to one-third of gravity. Right, well, right. Then if you trip and fall, you're not going to be injured so much. But it's all, But the major thing is, of course, in the cardiovascular system, and uh, particularly in the lymphatic system too, that it, it's much easier for circulation in, we believe, in lower gravity. But Right. That's an experiment that remains to be done. Right, right. But it means we've got to get out there to start yeah. doing this. You can do these experiments in low Earth orbit. Mm-hmm. You don't have to go a long sure. way. Yes. In fact, there's a proposal by a friend of mine named Gerald Joe Carroll about an easy way to do it in low Earth orbit using, uh, as a counterweight, the upper stage of Elon Musk's Dragon module. Mm-hmm. Yep. And Elon has already volunteered the use of one. Right. Because right. he's interested in the results. Right. It's right. basically you... you, you uh, String a cable out with some apartment house uh, apartments on it, mm-hmm. maybe a couple hundred meters long, and use the count, uh, the dragon module as the counterweight, right, and you spin the whole around. thing. Right. Yes. It's yes. a rigid cable. Yep. And that's an experiment that NASA should have done, right, could have right. done decades ago, and did not do. Yeah. So let's talk a bit about that because we seem to be at this tipping point where NASA is really bogged down by the bureaucracy of, of being a government agency. And it seems like you're seeing these private companies and these visionaries just completely take it over. Uh, is that your sense that, that we're seeing uh, the emergence of a, a new order with space with these private entrepreneurs? Indeed, yes. Uh, my old uh, and now unfortunately recently deceased friend Jerry Purnell Um, calls it the iron law of bureaucracy. Mm -hmm. In the long run, no matter what the stated aim of an agency, its true purpose will be the expansion and preservation of itself. Right. That's happened in NASA. Okay, right, right. NASA has a so-called space launch system, by some called the Senate launch system, Mm -hmm. (laughs) because that appears to be the only backer. Right. um, Which is supposed to do essentially what uh, Elon is about to do in right, the next the year, car, yes. except NASA doesn't think they could even have a launch for mm. maybe four right, right. years or more. Yes. They're hopelessly behind. A friend of mine, an engineer who works at high level on this system, I saw a few weeks ago in Huntsville, Alabama um, at the, the NASA base, and I said, when do you think you'll actually launch? And he said, I think the question is if. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so clearly, you you're seeing people take over and go beyond this this bureaucracy. Mm-hmm. But, but let me ask you a pointed question here. So, I can imagine you look at this sort of small sort of cohort of, of visionaries that are really pushing forward with getting into space. Um, is there a question of 
um, accountability we need to ask there because these people seem to be able to do whatever they want. They've got the vision, they've got the engineering, they've got the science. Um, is this a good thing that they just push the boundaries without feeling as if they're accountable to anybody? Well, they're accountable to their stockholders. You right. may have forgotten about that. Right, <laughs> yes, that's quite important. The stockholders will have to judge whether these are good, interesting gestures right. or not. So far, they right. say, yeah, let's do it, because yep. they see a real add-on value. After mm -hmm. all, Elon Musk is delivering groceries mm -hmm. to the International Space Station right. because, guess who, right. NASA cannot. Right. But, but actually, just to take an aside there, so I, I find this absolutely fascinating. It goes back to something you said earlier, that these people are visionaries. They're, they're not trying to make massive amounts of money. They're trying to just change the future. And so presumably, they're running this fine line or walking this fine line between satisfying their stakeholders, who I guess some of them do want to see the money flow, but at the same time using that to forward their mission and their vision. That's true. But let's remember that the, that the stockholders are not just a bunch of phlegmatic uh, cartoon mm -hmm. banks, bankers. Right. Uh, they're people like me. Oh, right, <laughs> right. So, so you share in the vision. Yeah. I share That's, in the vision right. and I'm willing to put capital in it, and right. I have. Right, right. So a lot of people put money into this, not mm -hmm. just uh, Elon or the others. I had dinner with Elon uh, some months ago and asked him, uh, uh, what about the Hyperloop idea, mm -hmm. uh, the Hyperloop train? He's planning on building a, about a five-kilometer track in Texas to test it out, right. where he believes the first actual operating Hyperloop will almost certainly run, probably right. the route from Dallas to Austin. Yep. Um, and uh, I said, how's it going? And he said, uh, we have people knocking on the door every day who want to invest in it. Yep, yep. I can imagine. Well, and if you look at, at the potential of the system, especially when you combine that with his uh, boring company, so yes. you, you can then sort of put it right. on the ground. The thing is, in Texas, uh, we discussed this in some engineering detail, it's not obvious that you even want to put it underground. Right, right. You could put, remember, it, uh, uh, this, this construction is a cylinder. Right, right. In which you pump out 90% of the air to reduce air resistance. Yeah. And you run the train along a maglev, and there's some interesting designs about how you use the remaining uh, air to actually get a bit of lift out of it mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, in an aerodynamic way. Um, and you get up to velocities of uh, something like 200 to 250 miles an hour. Right, right. So you can get to Austin from Dallas faster than an airplane, particularly since you don't have to go to the airport sure. and, and go yes. through security. Yes, yes, <laughs> yeah. So uh, that's going to be an interesting enterprise because they plan to build a railroad on top of this test bed. Okay. <laughs> I mean, you build a test bed, it right, works, right. and it becomes part of a whole system. Sure, yes. Um, yes. I suggested to him, uh, because I used to, uh, to be in Texas, I'm uh, from Alabama, but I uh, lived in Dallas for a while, that if you build a route from Dallas to Austin, and then from Austin to Houston, mm -hmm. you will have accomplished the longer leg of the pyramid, mm -hmm. or the triangle, which is uh, Dallas to Houston. Right. Uh, and if it's fast enough, there's no point in building the Dallas to Houston. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> so you just build two legs. You don't build, right, you need to build right, all three. Right, right, Until the passenger level demands it. Yes. So those are the kind of economic ca calculations. That, that, that you begin to make. But yeah. what is different here is, and so you, you take the Hyperloop, and it's the idea's been around for a while. Um, it makes perfect engineering sense. But it seems like people only began to take it seriously when Elon Musk wrote his, his white paper. And so you've got this very unusual thing happening where you've got this combination of vision and audacity that seems to be deeply grounded in engineering. Also, uh, the company is run by a committee of one. 
Right, right. <laughs> I asked him uh, uh, only a couple of months after uh, the rather absurd plans for the bullet train in California, mm -hmm. whose true cost no one really knows, but it's something like over $40 billion mm -hmm. for a plan that was, by the way, passed by the voters when its price tag was $8 billion. Right. And they are, are going to soon have spent all that much and they even, even got an operating piece of it. Anyway, after, shortly after that, when uh, I saw Elon, I said, uh, how did you reach this plan? And he said, well, when I read the bullet train uh, idea, I turned to my engineers and said, can you think of something that's really different that kind of solves the problem and doesn't do all this other stuff that you know, slows it down? Um, and they came up with an idea. And uh, so I told them to develop it in detail. And I put it on the internet. I downloaded it right. and, and read it. And I said, how long did the whole thing t take? And he thought for a moment, he said, it was either three or four weeks. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, but that's the power of having an individual person. Well, and you've got a team, and right. I met them, yep. of dozens and dozens of engineers who want to make the future, right. not right. remake the past. Right. But as well, it seems like um, both Elon and his team are really grounded in what is feasible from an engineering and a, a science perspective. Um, and again, that's something that fascinates me, and I want to come back to you as a science fiction writer. It's that really interesting uh, connection between vision and imagining a, a science fiction-like future, but never losing sight of reality. Um, and so how do you do that? So I mean, you live in this space where you're a physicist, so you actually know what the world is really like, and yet you seem to be able to also imagine a future which is very different from where we live. Well, you know, science fiction is the cultural expression uh, which began largely in the early 20th century in the United States, although there were antecedents, Jules Verne mm -hmm. and H.G. Wells. Yep. Um, a cultural expression of the scientific and technical culture which had grown in Western civilizations mm -hmm. and had no artistic voice. Right. This is their artistic voice. The first science fiction magazine was the, a one-on Amazing Stories put out by a, a publisher who published a suite of about a dozen radio magazines mm -hmm. because radio was the big here-it-comes right. technology of the 1920s. And it had all kinds of fantastic ideas about putting radios in airplanes. What about that as an idea? Right. Um, or in the Second World War, the principal advantage uh, enjoyed by the German panzers was the fact that they put two-way radios in tanks, mm -hmm. and the British and the French had not. Right, right, right. <laughs> Think about the future. Sudden advantage, yes. Yeah, it's coming soon to a town near you. Right, right. Um, right. So the, the point is that this culture uses science fiction as a way of thinking about the future, mm -hmm. and they are were the vanguard because now the rate of acceleration in human technology and its effect on culture is so ra mm -hmm. rapid that we've all got to think about the future. Right, right. So, so that's how I see this. And I don't know whether it's just a physics training or whether it's something unusual because I certainly find within science at the moment that level of imagination seems to be discouraged in places. You're told that you have to follow the scientific process, you can't be too imaginative, too creative, mm -hmm. and to my mind that completely squashes what you can do. Yes, and the people who believe that will soon be footnotes. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, I live in the academy. I actually have a, a house on the campus at UC Irvine, mm -hmm. my, my home campus. Um, and I've uh, 
notice the effect of all these ideas on my colleagues, some of whom are in the humanities, other the social sciences, something about their predisposition encourages pessimism mm -hmm. about the future. Right. That has become the cliché dystopias that everybody knows now right. and which infests uh, young adult fiction. Mm -hmm. look, at, look at Hunger Games. Of course, it's, yes, uh, yes. I mean, here's a dystopia in which the old uh, fat, uh, seemingly rich people are exploiting and e uh, young people and setting them against each other so they have to hunt each other with bows and arrows or something like that. I'm not a big fan. <laughs> haven't watched much. Um, and, uh, of course, this is a cartoon. Right, right. Actually, the young people are the one who's going to own the future, not, right, not right, old people. Right. Um, and, but you only own the future if you invest in it. Mm-hmm. Yes. And the problem I see in the humanities and social sciences is that they have an innate pessimism and they resist ideas because there's a propensity to always see the problems because they are not trained to see the solutions. Right, right. Right. Scientists and engineers are trained to think about what you can do with this thing. Sure, and how to make it change. And some parts of the academy are not trained to do that. Mm -hmm. They are, literally, critics. Right, After right. All, what is the English department? Do they actually know how to write English? <laughs> In my experience, not very well. Right, But they right. are good critics, good critics of, of it. Yes, <laughs> yes. But I almost get the sense, I mean, just looking at the natural sciences, putting the social sciences aside, uh, there is still this, this sense that the people are trained not to be too imaginative and to go to the bench and do the experiments. Well, there's a, a certain predisposition, I admit, mm -hmm. to that. Mm -hmm. I started out as an engineering major. Right. Part way through, I realized that basically it was going to be about base uh, skills of how you do Blueprints, mm -hmm. a method soon out of date, yep. uh, and and the constraints. If you're going to build a bridge, how much do you overbuild it in order to be safe? Well, factor of three maybe. Uh, but the, the problem is that style is going out of style. Right. Right. Uh, you have to be sure that planes don't fall to the ground and things like that. So sure. you know this is a game played for keeps. Yep. But I think the engineering community is is now being electrified in in ways that it was in the past, but only intermittently, yeah. by this new band of entrepreneurs who are really doing, literally, breathtaking they, they are. sky's I, so, the limit. So, so in, in my lifetime, I've seen people translate what I thought was pure science fiction into science reality. Right. It's quite incredible. Yeah. The signal event that started all this was the Second World War, right. where the war was essentially largely won by those who mastered technology. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. And that had a huge impression on everyone. Yeah. I, I was born before the United States entered the Second World right. War. Right. So you saw, or at least experienced, yeah. that, that transition. I sure did. Yeah. And, and I lived three years in occupied Japan, three years in occupied Germany, and I saw the reaction of an older culture to the huge changes that were coming fast down the track toward them. So I'm, I'm guessing your perspective is that we need to do more of this. In fact, it's an exciting sort of trip we're on actually developing these technologies and putting them into place. It is. And it's not just about, you know, hi-ho, we're going to go to Earth orbit. Right, right. Uh, although I, I would love to have a, a suite <laughs> at Bigelow's first orbital hotel, okay, right. which he keeps you promising your name down there. Yes. is <laughs> going to be next year, and someday it will be next year. Right, right. <laughs> but not this year. Right. Um, but uh, but let me t talk about the other part of the talk. I'm sure, yes, give, yes. Which is on a cautionary note, uh, mm -hmm. and it, it illustrates this difference between seeing the problems instead of seeing the solutions. Right. I would point out that if you go into the the town square of 
small places around America, you don't see statues erected to the people who recognize the problems. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's the people who this solve is, the problems. Right, it's a subtle dig. <laughs> yes. So the big problem confronting human appetite and human population and the rising expectations of prosperity, yep. which we, the Americans, have advertised to the entire planet, uh, everybody seems to want to live the way we do, uh, is uh, climate change. Right. Climate change is a big problem because it is the large form of the tragedy of the commons. Mm -hmm. That is, uh, what's in common is overused and destroyed. Right, right. Nobody <laughs> takes responsibility. Right. And the atmosphere is the big dumping ground. It's worth remembering the atmosphere is actually, in a sense, small. The mass of the atmosphere is only about 20% larger than the mass of just the Mediterranean Sea. Which is incredible, yeah. It is a fairly small amount of mass on the planetary scale. Right. So it is not surprising that the effects of our using this environment show up first in the atmosphere because it's actually the smallest mass you can affect. Right, right. Um, Others would say, well, what about the topsoil uh, on the Earth? And depending on how deep you think the topsoil is, mm -hmm. topsoil actually is more mass than the atmosphere. Right. Easily, easily done, since it's a thousand times more dense. Right, right. So um, I believe that the constraint of human appetite will fail, mm -hmm. and we will not be able to cut down and reverse our use of fossil fuels. Just because of human nature, presumably. Human nature, but also, let's face it, 30 years of trying. Okay. Uh, the first time we started to hear about global warming, warming and, and I took part in a symposia on it and wrote papers in it for various methods, um, was 30 years ago. Right. And I uh, became interested in the problem of geoengineering. Okay. You see, what we're doing now is geoengineering. Mm -hmm. It's yes. just inadvertent. In, in the wrong way, yes. Yeah. yes. It's accidental side effect geoengineering. Yeah. I'm in favor of modifying the climate rationally to offset what we're doing irrationally. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think that is going to be a major issue okay. which will arise on a scale of about a decade yeah. because it will slowly dawn on everyone that we're not arresting our emissions. In fact, they're accelerating. Right, right. And that small gestures, such as the state of California has made by having you know, renewables that are at the 10% level of what we do, are, are, by the way, somewhat disguised because we are importing a whole lot of electrical power, which is generated by burning coal in Arizona. Right, right, <laughs> right, right. So there's a bit of a, a, a bait and switch going on in California politics. But the big problems out there are the rising ambitions of the Chinese, the Indians, people in South America, sure. uh, Africa. These people want uh, their homes warmed and, and air conditioned and products made for them, and that's not going to go away. So so when you look at this area, and I, so people have been talking about geoengineering for a, a long time, and I, um, I have a, a colleague who sort of pointed out that actually it's something of a non-conversation because nobody's doing it, they're just talking about it. But you've, of course, got these plans of putting sulfate aerosols into the stratosphere and a number of other things. But I know you've been exploring far more audacious possibilities, including... Um, deflecting the sun's light. Right. Well, actually, I did that as an exercise. And right. For some reason, people <laughs> took it up and took it. Because it's exciting and interesting. My signature. <laughs> right. I'm not actually in favor of okay. putting a lens, mm -hmm. for no lens, yeah. at 
between us and the sun right. and slightly deflecting sunlight away from the earth so we get a little less illumination. Yep. I'm not in favor of that. I just explored it as an interesting physics problem. Which is a, it's actually a very interesting idea. But it would cost two to three trillion dollars. Okay, yes. You know what the GDP of the planet is? It's a little less than that, isn't it? Around about the same? Well, no, it's about 60 trillion. Oh, it's okay. But right. the United so States is on, is on, the yes. U.S. is almost 18 trillion. Right, okay. But where are you going to get a handy three trillion dollars? Sure, it's, it's a lot of money. Actually, yes. okay, it's a lot of money, but it's, it's, uh, it's twice the student debt ah, in, in the United goodness. States. That, so that's a scary comparison. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yeah, let's not talk about that. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So okay, so so coming back, I mean, sort of what what are the what's the portfolio of more realistic technologies that you um, are interested in? I first worked on carbon sequestration and mm -hmm. invented, with, along with Bob Metzger and, uh, and and others, a method of collecting farm waste because I grew up on a farm in southern mm -hmm. Alabama along yep. the Gulf Coast, um, and bundled it up, let it float on a raft down river, take it out into the ocean, mm -hmm. drop it with a weight on it below the thermocline, which mm -hmm. is the barrier between the two zones of the ocean. Yep. And it's farm waste, it's got carbon in it. And instead of, as we do now, if you leave it on the field, in a month it's gone because it rots and right. all the carbon goes into CO2. Uh, instead of doing that, you put it at the bottom of the oceans and it will not be back for a thousand years. Right. We, those are numbers we know. Right. right. In fact, I and my colleagues are carrying out an experiment two kilometers down in the Pacific Ocean with a bale of corn stalks mm -hmm. to see exactly how long this takes. And so far, seven years in, it's really slow. Okay, right. And right. first it goes into the water, and then slowly this water gets changed and churned up to the surface of the ocean. That takes a thousand years. Mm -hmm. so, but we wanted a good number for that. Right. Uh, that's one method, and I spent a lot of time on that. Oh, a lot of other small things, such as putting sand in, in blacktop will reflect more sunlight, mm -hmm. but it yep. will also decrease the road friction when you drive over it. Sure. So you'll save energy that in several well, different yes. ways, but you'll also reflect sunlight. Yep. And then I turned to aerosols at the behest of uh, colleagues of mine who were at Livermore Labs and also at Stanford. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was uh, asked by the Department of Defense through DARPA, the research agency, and also interestingly about this, uh, um, the CIA, to look into how you would do uh, aerosol geoengineering. That is, you put aerosols up in a certain region and you reflect sunlight right. for a while and you cool the whole thing. An interesting number, by the way, is that we get from the sun at high noon about 1,300 watts in a square meter, right? Right. size of a standard coffee table. Um, if you take away two of those watts on average, mm -hmm. you can stop the thermal expansion of the ocean okay. and stop the melting of the glaciers. So you're looking at fairly small it's a, changes. Yes. It's yeah. two parts in a thousand, right. some number yep. like that. Yep. So it's small, uh, so it doesn't take a lot. It is enormously cheaper than any other scheme ever, ever right. proposed. Right. I work specifically on how to save the Arctic, because the Arctic and the Antarctic are the fastest ch changing sure. yes. climate zones we have. Yep. That turned out to be actually very easy and even cheap. For a cost in the range of $100 million, you can screen the summer, mm -hmm. in the summer, the Arctic, and stop the retreat of the sea ice, and you can stop the tundra from emitting CO2 right. and methane, which it is doing right now, right. And we've measured. So, so presumably that's, that's fairly localized aerosol clouds up in the, the stratosphere, right. just so you're modulating those particular areas. It, it turns out that luckily, by geophysical accident, 
there's a thing called the solar vortex, mm -hmm. which is the circulatory system around the poles that runs in the summer and largely keeps clouds in the Arctic right. in the Arctic. Right, yes. So it turns out that's a good place to do an experiment yep. because if you put aerosols at a little bit above 40,000 feet, which we can do right. with yes. airplanes right now, of known technology because we use those in the so-called flight extenders. You know, right. When the President of the United States flies around the globe, he doesn't land to get refueled. Mm -hmm. He's refueled in air. Sure. We have many hundreds of those airplanes. Yep. Um, so you do that to the Arctic, you put the aerosols up, let's say, in early June, and they will slowly settle in, and they'll fall into our zone, the what's called the troposphere, mm -hmm. yep. from the stratosphere, and they will rain out in September and October. Right, right. So it's fairly temporary. Yeah. Yes. And you, you just block the heat in the summer. Yep. yep. Then you do the same thing to Antarctica. Right. When it's the summer in the Southern Pole. Those are two clear experiments we could do where largely nobody lives. Right, right. And we can see what the effect is. So here's the, the, the challenge before we wrap this up. Um, so this has been talked about for a while, or just putting aerosols up. Um, so far, nobody has been able to do uh, a, an experiment to scale on this, in part because there are quite a lot of people that are worried about whether this puts us on a slippery slope of starting to play yeah. around with the, the um, climate. How do you begin to approach this, these broader issues of what people will allow scientists to do and not do? Well, I understand the objections. I would point out, by the way, that the slippery slope argument is an argument you can test mm -hmm. by doing the experiment. Right, right. <laughs> the slippery slope people don't seem to understand that we can actually find out if that's true. Right. Because so far, it's just a hand-waving argument. Exactly, yes. Um, but we, on the other hand, have done real calculations, and Stanford University did extensive computer simulations of what would happen, and they reached a the conclusion that basically you can just cool the Arctic, and it has very little effect elsewhere. Right, right. Um, but the other part of the argument is uh, we've got to do small-scale experiments long before we do something mm -hmm. like cover the whole Arctic yep. in order to find out what, how the physics works. Right. I mean, right. this is stuff on a, on a chalkboard. Uh, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We need to do real experiments in order to find out if we know what we're talking about. Right, right. They don't understand that do, understanding a system is not the same as getting on a slippery slope. Sure. Because you're not actually not cooling the war, world. Sure, but and you've got to generate data and knowledge right. and understanding. You have to explore first. You know, Lewis and Clark didn't go all the way to the Pacific Ocean in order to carry goods to barter. Right, They right. just went to find out what was so, going on. Right, right, yes. Because yep. we literally didn't know anything about the rivers, the mountains, yeah. it was yeah. totally exploration. Yeah. So then one final question on this, and then I must let you go. Um, who's going to pay for this? I, so it's it's actually not that expensive. It sounds like it's a viable idea, but somebody's got to pony the money up. I think inevitably you have to involve government, mm -hmm. and government can do this for actually trivial amounts of money. Right. I mean, the Arctic experiment, $100 million, that's a rounding error. Right. <laughs> uh, right. Uh, and they are the ones who uh, have the power of governance to make it happen. Mm -hmm. I would point out that the stratosphere has no governing international treaty. Right. There is no law about it, no agreement among nations about it. So mm -hmm. you can do whatever you like. Right, right. And the Arctic Council only has six members. And the major two are Russia and us. So we need to negotiate, negotiate a deal with the Russians. Right. This is what state departments are supposed to do. Mm -hmm. yes, yes. That's the first step, is to try to do some interesting sh small experiments, then build up something like an Arctic experiment. Let the world know you're doing something about it. And by the way, the people who are focused on 
constraining CO2 emissions, they will realize how serious the situation is right. if we're doing these alternatives. Mm -hmm. Yes. That puts a sense of gravitas. Right, right. To right, the problem. Right, as well as national urgency, obviously. Right. Yes, yeah. And basically, the only power that can do it is the United States. Right, right. So, just to wrap up, I mean, again, putting your science fiction visionary writer's hat on. Where do you see the world being in 30 plus years time? Do you see us actually breaking through and beginning to engineer the climate so we actually can control the excesses of our consumption? Yes, I believe so. Okay. I think we will be doing aerosol screening, we will be doing carbon sequestration in wherever works out, and we will be bringing resources into the hungry populations of Earth from the rest of the solar system. Excellent. Greg, thank you so much. Thank you. For more where that came from, check out the School for the Future of Innovation and Society at sfis.asu.edu. Future Out Loud is produced with the support of the School for the Future of Innovation and Society and the Risk Innovation Lab at ASU. Mark Van Hare created our music. Esmeralda Parker is our production assistant. Our website is futureoutloud.org. Subscribe to Future Out Loud on iTunes or SoundCloud or wherever you get your fine podcasts.